Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm so good. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I'm like low-key fangirling because this is such an honor to be able to sit down with you and talk. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So how are you today? It's Mother's Day, so I had to call all the relatives. Um, it's I have a West Indian family, so I will be talked about if I do not call them. So <laughs> I know, I know what that's like. If I'm being honest, my is West Indian. Do you mean? Um, I was gonna. Say, I don't know if I can relate because my parents are Nigerian. So, but I still see what you're saying, like that kind of familiar familial respect kind of thing, and yeah. yeah. No, I no, it's it's fairly similar. It's fairly similar because you know we all come from the same place, basically. But you know how it is. Like if it if um if you don't call them, they'll talk about you. They'll <laughs> they'll be they'll be passive aggressive with you for the next two years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like that one thing they'll always like hold against you. That yeah. kind of thing. Yes, that's very much so them. Okay, so pretty much just gonna go over, I'm just gonna look at the questions one more time. Just like, um, you know, what your life has been like as a disability rights activist, your nonprofit work, um, your social media platforms, how you use that to inspire change and everything. So I'm just gonna go right in. So what exactly does your nonprofit organization do? Yeah, so we work with people with disabilities across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and, a, and there's a whole network of us, of disability rights advocates, that talk a lot about um, the issues that are facing dis disabled Americans, um, as well as some of the fixes that we can go around doing. Um, and so I work in the capacity of communications and outreach. And so what I try to do is make sure our message is cohesive, make sure that we're reaching out to the right groups, and then also making sure that our materials reflect the community that we're working with. Um, and so a lot of times I have to deal with a lot of pictures, a lot of graphics, um, and it's really hard to find disabled people of color um, in graphics and stock photos um, mm. that are, you know, affordable to a lot of nonprofits, so. Okay, how long have you been a part of your organization? About two and a half years now. So I, work, I started working for them in, I want to say December of 2018. Um, and so I've been there since then. Uh, it's, it's been a roller coaster. I really do like the work. Um, it's been a really challenging during the pandemic because there have been so many issues facing the disability community that people kind of just forgot about. Um, but I do really enjoy the work that I do. What, what inspired you or motivated you to become a part of this specific one? One of the things that really inspired me to work is that, you know, I think that disability organizations really need to kind of contend with the fact that disability is seen as mostly white. Um, and so a lot of the times when we're doing outreach to, to other communities that are not white people, people, there's always this question like, how do we reach them? Um, and, and then you look at their materials and it's all white people with disabilities. And then you look at their um, messaging and it's mostly to white people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times there's a lack of cultural competency when it comes to minorities with disabilities um, in terms of, like for, for a lot of minority communities, claiming a disability is just one more thing that they can discount you for publicly. Like it's harder to get a job, it's harder to get services, it's harder to understand services, um, it's, it's harder to maintain and keep healthcare. Um, and so a lot of communities of color, um, particularly black people, do not claim their disability simply because 
it makes life that much harder. But that doesn't mean that those that those communities are not entitled to those things. Um, so making sure that we can tailor messaging towards those communities is extremely valuable um, for all disability organizations. So that's kind of why I was excited to work with them because I want more black people to understand the services they're legally entitled to. Right, I also, like when you said lack of cultural competency, that is definitely resonating with me because I mean, even with the Black Lives Matter movement that we just saw, it was, I don't know, it definitely rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, how there wasn't, how there wasn't that inclusivity, how disabled people were not necessarily included in the talk, despite the fact that they are still discriminated against within the criminal justice system. So I guess I can just go to that question. Um, in light of the outcome of Derek Chauvin's trial, you tweeted that his being found guilty in all charges was a sacrifice made to maintain those of the criminal justice system. And I was just wondering, like, in what ways do you believe that the system discriminates against disabled people and even profits off of the incarceration of disabled people? Yeah, so to be clear, that quote was basically me, say, me saying that the criminal justice system views Chauvin's um, guilty verdict as a sacrifice, not necessarily that he is a sacrificial lamb. So it doesn't make that clear, first off. Okay. But one of the things that we don't ever talk about is the high rates of incarceration for disabled people. And it's uh, about 30 to 40% of prisoners in jails and prisons have a disability. And then we account for about half of the people that are shot by police um, and killed in, in these altercations. And so one of the things that we never really talk about is that when we talk about blackness and disability, we rarely ever recognize the fact that a lot of the people that are shot by police are black and disabled. And every single time we try to bring it up that there are people who are harmed by police that are disabled, people automatically have that thing of it's just white people or like it's white people being shot by police, like they're not gonna care because they already see them as disposable because they're disabled people. But nobody ever thinks like these, like we live at the intersection of both of these identities. And mm -hmm. there's this idea that if, that if we're talking about disability, we're talking about white issues, which is farthest from the truth. We have some of the highest rates of disability in the country, second only to indigenous people. Um, and that's a whole other story that I don't feel comfortable going into because that's not my identity. But, when we talk about incarceration in the uh, school to prison pipeline, that's mostly kids with disabilities that are people of color as well, that are criminalized for the expression of their disability, who are not given the proper resources, tools, and accommodations to thrive in school, and then who are ushered into uh, prisons and jails. Um, so it's, there's a high correlation. And one of the things that I, I get really frustrated about is that when we talk about Black Lives Matter and a lot of um, community organizing around blackness and racism in this country, we give a lot of lip service to disability, but we don't really include too many disabled people in that conversation. And we'll say, we recognize you, but what does that recognition look like if there's no action on, on the back end? You know, I see that with a, a ton of things that are geared towards black folk and I'm uh, recognizing us as a community isn't enough. Like you have to include us in the planning and the messaging and the, and the community building um, because we can't ignore it. It is a part of our story, just as any other vested, as any other echo of racism is. Um, racism actively disables you, um, whether it's environmental racism, 
medical racism, structural racism, interpersonal racism, death is not the only outcome, disability is as well. And so if we're not recognizing those things, we're doing ourselves a, a disservice. Right. Again, when you said we give a lot of lip service to disability, but then we don't actually include them, I literally got chills because that is so even when you think about how companies like jumped on the bandwagon of Black Lives Matter and this and that, and then I didn't, I mean, I don't know if we really saw much about um, the intersection of Blackness and disability, but even if we did, we weren't really hearing it from disability rights advocates. We were kind of hearing some empty rhetoric on their side. Um, but yeah, um, again, that was such a brilliant answer. I like, don't really know where to go. <laughs> I'm just like, um, okay, well, here's one. How has the limited representation of disabled people, let alone black disabled people and everything ranging from politics to the entertainment industry manifested itself into any internalized ableism or racism that you have experienced, especially from a young age? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, just from a very young age, even just getting diagnosed is extremely hard for my mother and I. I mean, I was a baby, so she's doing a lot of the legwork. Um, <laughs> it took a network of Black women to get me diagnosed as, as having cerebral palsy. Because my mom will go to doctor and doc doctor to doctor to say, my, my baby's not moving. Like my lower half of my body specifically was just limp um, from early childhood. And I also couldn't hold my head up by myself for a very long time. Um, and the, the doctors are literally looking at a limp baby and going, oh, she's okay. Like, she'll be fine. She's like going at her own pace. And my mom's like, no, something is wrong. Um, and oh. I kind of knew that I was going to be disabled because about three to four months into her pregnancy with me, she had to be put on bed rest for the rest of her pregnancy. So she was in, on bed rest for about four months. So she knew, she knew that something was an issue, but she literally went for like two years back and forth with doctors. And it wasn't until um, uh, one of the church ladies out of my church, uh, she was an, a mother of a disabled kid. And she was like, Virginia, my mom, Virginia, go to this doctor don't go to any of these other doctors, go to this doctor, go to this hospital system. Um, and then ask that person whether or not she has a disability. And we literally had the same doctors for most of our childhoods because my mom was like, this is the only person who's actually recognized that something's an issue. Um, so let's, so let's move forward with them. So we had very much so the same circle of, you know, diagnosed parents and um, mothers and then kids were also in the same place. So my mom doesn't really chalk it up to racism, but I'm like, it had like, there's no other way you can explain this that they would look at a limp baby and be like, everything's fine. Um, but yeah, so she was very much a walk, you know, going around for two to three years trying to get me diagnosed. Um, and then there was just so many issues with just never seeing myself portrayed in anything. Um, or, and I think that part of the issue is that a lot of black people have internalized ableism. So we have representation, we just don't know we do. Um, and so because people won't talk about it, which is fair because of all the other circumstances that ableism can lead to. But at the same time, you have a young group of people that are like, where do I fit into this tapestry? Where do I fit in to society? And then nobody's talking about it. There is no representation when I was growing up of disabled adults with disabilities who were also black. Like there was just none. 
and the few that we had it was oh they overcame their disability like people would always point to stevie wonder um and rach harles and be like they overcame their disability no they were sitting there right with it like they were sitting there with uh, playing piano blind like they didn't go away simply because they were talented um and so there's this idea that if we are there's this idea of respectability politics that kind of formulates in black disabled kids minds where you're not respectable if you're disabled regardless mm -hmm. you're not respectable if you talk about your disability and if you and if you lean into it more then there's more reason for the outside world to police your existence mm. particularly for me because i have a visible disability that was never really an option for me like that was not something that where i can be like oh, i'm gonna hide my crutches today or you know, I'm gonna make sure that I am running around so people don't really judge me in this kind of way. I literally was walking into every single room with my disability present first, my blackness present first. And so I didn't really have an option of deciding what piece of me people saw. But then I also found myself trying to mold who I was to the person in the room. So that like my blackness is a little bit quieter. My disability was a little bit quieter. I make certain jokes based on who I was talking to. So they were more at ease with my presence. And um, no, I don't really feel that much of an impetus to do that. <laughs> I'm 31 years old at this point. I don't really care anymore. <laughs> you either like me or you don't. Like, I'm not gonna sit there and like, look at you and be like, oh my God, I hope, no, who cares? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. so. Okay, that was, when you talked about um, respectability politics, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you just as a young age, learning to quiet parts of yourself and then like molding yourself to what the other person was thinking. Oh yeah. yeah <laughs> my dad raised me, my dad, my dad was, we were very much so the black family in the all white suburbs and we went to all white schools. And that's another thing that people don't tell you about being black and disabled, which is in a lot of states, you are legally allowed to go to the school with the better accommodations for disabilities. But those schools are usually predominantly white because they get the most resources. Right. So going to like all white schools, all white after school programs, they come into black ass church and then like my household. Um, and then my dad was like, my dad always taught me that we were always being watched. Like we're always like, and people would make sure that we knew we were always being watched in our neighborhood. Like they would make like slightly little comments about how my dad changed shirts to go gardening, even though it was the same exact shirt. Just right. like, like, you just, <laughs> like, I don't want it. It's wet. Like, and he would yeah. change, he'd be like, oh, you changed your shirt. My dad's like, so we, we like, we always knew we were being watched, but my dad, well, my dad couldn't explain to me because he didn't grow up visibly disabled was that I was also being watched in a completely different way. Right. I was also watched for, um, I was always constantly being watched and like my existence being like processed by other people verbally to me. So people would make comments about me or like say like, oh, I didn't know people with cerebral palsy could be black. Um, like little things like that. Um, and so he didn't really know how to kind of talk about that with me. And then also the way he was perceived in my presence was also different as a black man. Cause they always thought like doctors and particularly white women always thought that he was abusing me and that's why I was disabled. Wow. So like, 
and then also what I would do and then also if he was perceived as a threat in any room even until I was like 18 19 years old what I would do is I would make myself extremely physically small and then also like really baby like and then hold my dad's hand so like make sure that he held my hand in like public spaces where he was considered a threat so that he would look less threatening because he was taking dis- care of a, this disabled girl um that is such a heavy burden to carry as a young girl. And it was, I mean, that was one of my questions. It was, how, it was as a black disabled woman, in what ways do you experience racism differently in comparison to POC able-bodied people? And that is, I'm, I'm honestly speechless. Even the part about how they make, how they assume that your dad was abusing you by the mere fact that you were disabled yeah, because there's no, like like you said before, there's barely any representation of disabled Black people in media. And so the only assumption that somebody could be disabled is because of abuse or harm or, uh, you know, race or violence. Um, there's this guy named Leon, oh, I can't think of his last name, but his name is Leon and what he and he was shot by police. And he was ashamed to tell people that he was shot by police and became paralyzed because of that because he was afraid that they would assume that he was the criminal in that equation. Wow. Things are just different for us. And I don't see a lot of people talking about it. And that's why I get so frustrated because even the way that we talk about Makaya Bryant has been shaped by rumors of her being disabled. Like it wasn't enough that people ignored her struggle and her, um, and the violence that she had to face because she was a black girl. But then there were rumors that she might be autistic. And I will only refer to those as rumors. And then the, the conversation like completely shut off at that point. And it's not enough to say that, that that conversation ended simply because she's a black girl. We have to evaluate how ableism played a role too. Because she does not, she deserves to still be here. And no matter how respectable disability does or does not make you, she deserves to still be here. She was a child. And so when we talk about how ableism shapes the way we talk about blackness, those are the types of things that I'm talking about. You know, there's, we experience racism differently. We experience ableism all the time from both sides, regardless of it's, if it's white culture or black culture trying to police the boundaries of what blackness is. And then we just never discuss it as a whole, you know? Wow. Could you talk a little bit more about um, the Micaiah Bryant situation? I'm not, I wasn't familiar that there, that there were rumors going around about that. Yeah, so about a couple of weeks ago, there were there was speculation that she might be autistic, um, and that that's um, part of what led to her kind of reacting in the way that she did to the abuse that she was facing. Um, and they, I heard that rumor like back and forth, and I I didn't want to comment on it at first because I they were they were unsubstantiated, and they're still they're still not confirmed that she's autistic. But after a while, I started to see the ways in which we were talking about her differently because she is autistic or, or was considered autistic, you know? Like almost justifying what happened to her because she was autistic or how so? It's kind of like, oh, it's a tragedy. But, you know, she was holding a knife and she was she was belligerent. And like, those are all things that, you know, you know, for Black autistics and I'm, I don't want to speak over them or for them. But a lot of times the way that they talk about how their their behaviors are pathologized differently than white autistic people's behavior, very much so are in line with how we we talked about Micaiah Bryant in light of these rumors. 
Um, okay. And, you know, the, just the manifestation of your disability is different when you're black and is more criminalized when you're black. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. That's just so devastating that they would do that to a 16 year old child who was, who already lost her life. Um, so more criminal. Wow. Okay. All brilliant answers. Just playing off of how you've experienced racism differently because you are disabled. I was going to talk about as a black woman and what ways do you experience sexism differently in comparison to POC able-bodied people? Because obviously I, you know, there's like at the intersection of race and disability, there's also gender. And I was just wondering if you would like to talk about I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is the way that we talk about um, desexualization of disabled people. There's like this, all the, there's always this assumption that disabled people aren't really a sexual being. So we're constantly just ignored from every conversation around that. Um, and particularly when it comes to gender and like safety in certain spaces, we're completely ignored when it comes to the abuse and the, the, the entitlement people have towards our bodies. Um, and particularly disabled black girls. I mean, I say this with disabled women in general, but particularly disabled black girls, we're supposed to be grateful for any attention that we get. Mm. Like I remember one time and I tell the story all the time now, but I remember I was in a parking lot. I was going to Sally's beauty supply at nine o'clock at night. I didn't think anything of it because I was like, my mom was harassing me to get my hair done and I just wanted her to leave me alone. Um, so I went to go get like some clips or whatever for my, for my locks and some gel. And I was getting back into my car and I drive by myself. Um, so lo- logically, if I have a car, I can get into my car. It just takes me a little while and it looks like I'm struggling, but I'm not. And so I was getting in my car and I didn't hear anything come up behind me, but this man bear hugs me from behind and starts lifting me off the ground. And I was like struggling and he was like, and then after he, after he realized I was struggling, he was like, um, <clears throat> after he realized I was struggling, he was like, whoa, whoa, what's wrong? And I was like, what do you mean what's wrong? Like, I, was, I said, uh, you just picked me up off the ground. Um, and also that's a whole different dangerous thing. But anyways, no, so, right. well, I was just trying to help you. And I'm like, I don't care what you were trying to do. Like, <laughs> And if I and if I tell a non-disabled person that, they'll be like, "Well, he was just trying to help. He had the best of intentions." Like, I don't care what his intentions were. He lifted me off the ground. It did not announce himself. Was touching me without my permission. And and the idea is that like, we're, one, we're supposed to be grateful, and two, we're never supposed to assume that there's any sexual harm that's supposed to come to us because we're not seen as desirable. Mm, wow. So like, so like my. So like my uh, reaction to that is his entitlement to my body and trying to quote unquote help me is me being seen as blowing it out of proportion. Right. Uh, Because why would anybody want to, you know, sexually harm a disabled person? There's not something that happens. Um, When statistically we are most likely to become victims of sexual assault and trauma across the board. That was... Hmm. Just the fact that they would invalidate like sexual assault claims on the mere basis that disabled people are not desired. Yeah. Again, 
I, you were just educating me through the roof right now because even right off the bat when you said desexualization of disabled people, I was like, holy shit, that is part of my French. <laughs> that is definitely a topic that needs to be talked about more because it's not even, because for your lives to be put more, even more at risk because of these tropes and stereotypes is utterly ridiculous. And I guess my question is, how do you think that these stereotypes that, um, like, how do you think that it's been institutionalized and like used to systematically like put disabled, at least POC disabled people like in their place? Oh yeah, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I have so much, let me just, my thoughts are just jumbled, okay. So, one of the things that I, when I was growing up, I never really saw disabled couples, like, particularly, like, disabled Black couples, but then I realized, like, growing, as I got older and got more ingrained in disability advocacy, that the system is actually designed to affirm those stereotypes and biases. So, let's talk about, like, the welfare queen stereotype, like, the single Black mom stereotype. That stereotype is a disability stereotype. Like when you when you realize that Black women are some of the most likely to become disabled because of um, medical racism, environmental racism, interpersonal uh, violence, and things like that, then you realize that they may need more access to healthcare. Right? They would. They would. They would just need more access. But <laughs> for um, a lot of people with disabilities, um, which Women, black women are disproportionately represented in. For a lot of women with disabilities, um, if you get married, you lose your access to healthcare and benefits because there's an income threshold. Wow. So, like, we, this entire stereotype is built around criminalizing black women for accessing a system that was designed for the very thing that they're accessing it for. And then they're stereotyped once they do use it because the system is literally built to keep people from quote unquote faking their disabilities or making too much money. So that, that affects generational wealth, that affects access to healthcare, that access, uh, access to education and um, forces people into red light districts. Like the entire system is built to segregate black people and what, the way that they do that is with disability. And so like this, this system affirms every worst stereotype that we have about black and brown people. Right. Um, and so like it's built, into the, it's built into the system. And so when we talk about like, whenever I hear those stereotypes being talked about, I'm like, you realize that that's a thing that happens because of disability and because of laws built to, um, built to keep disabled people in poverty, essentially. Um, and so when people say, oh, well, why did this poor black woman have more kids? Like it's it's a widely known trope that if you go to if you go to social security offices or benefits offices, they'll say if you need more money for A, B, or C, have another child. Like that's literally what they say is have another child. Um, um, that's more of a rumor, but a lot of people have anecdotally said that they were told to have ex you know another child in order to up their uh, access to benefits. Um, exactly. And so when we talk about all these stereotypes, they're literally built around disability, but we, because we never talk about disability, we don't really have all the tools to deconstruct them going forward. Right, even in, um, I took this one uh, after American Studies class, and we talked a lot about um, 
we talked a lot about the welfare queen stereotype, but we never talked about how inherently ableist it was, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It was very much so, um, I guess now that I'm looking at it, when we, even when people criticize the welfare, when people criticize Black women on welfare, I do see what you're saying when everyone else, when we attack those people, we don't say how ableist they're being. We're just like, oh, you're racist, you're this, you're that. But we don't really talk about how, we don't talk about like the intersection with disability. And I guess that's definitely how it's still like going, like this these stereotypes, because if you don't attack it at its source, then you know it's just gonna keep functioning and tearing apart people's lives. Yeah. So I, guess, I just wanna thank you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. And okay, um, I have so many questions, but like, I just, I want it to flow well. So I'm just gonna read over them a, for a little bit. Um, they're just so like, different from what we're talking about right now. Okay, well, I, maybe this one. Uh, <laughs> one <laughs> so one of your most shared hashtags is patients are not faking, a hashtag that touches on the ways in which the BIPOC community and the disabled community have had their concerns neglected by the medical industrial complex. How do you think this longstanding history of neglect has been playing out during the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh my God, yeah. The, every bit of structural ableism and racism that has existed in this country has reared its ugly head during this pandemic. Um, for everything from medical rationing guidelines that would disproportionately affect uh, black and brown patients during COVID to um, people just not people just not caring to wear a mask, knowing full well that it pre- predominantly affects black and brown people because we then have to go into a system that's racist. Um, it it really has just highlighted so much. And I think that ableism during this pandemic has been, has touched every single aspect to it. From work from home being as, uh, made available as soon as non-disabled people needed it, to work from school, to, uh, you know, telecommuting to school, to, um, like I said, medical rationing, to mask wearing, to this idea that disabled and elderly people are disposable um, to keep the economy going. And I think that people weren't really prepared for ableism to be this prevalent in everyday society because um, they didn't really pay attention to the disability community beforehand and a lot of them still don't. But we knew it was gonna be bad as soon as, as soon as they started calling healthcare workers, heroes, I knew it was going to be terrible. Wow. Can you elaborate? Oh yeah. Like with, there's like this like inspirational industrial complex. And basically like we, anybody that you find disposable in this country will have either an appreciation day or be told that they're a hero or inspiring. Um, And disabled people (laughs) have been told that we're inspiring all the time, but there's been no, national organizing around disability rights that were outside of the disability community. Um, That, you know, they would rather watch us suffer and then watch us overcome our disabilities because that's more inspiring to them than them actually helping us and some of these structural barriers. And so when I saw that healthcare workers were gonna be called heroes and were inspiring, like I was like, oh crap, they're not gonna do a damn thing about this. Like they, 
they've made it a whole PR campaign and and healthcare workers were still wearing trash bags. Like the money that could have been spent diverted from those those campaigns on them being inspiring and heroes or whatever could have gone to us figuring out how to get them PPE. Like mm-hmm. there's this idea that like you have to watch people suffer in this country in order for you to feel good about yourself, but then you don't have any sort of internal need to change the material circumstances of the people that are inspiring you because without their struggle you're not inspired wow so as soon as people started calling them heroes i was like oh this has been gonna be bad bad because and this keep in mind this happened about four to six months after patients are not faking that hashtag and so i knew that like these healthcare workers they, they're not like a monolith. They have their own biases inherent in who they are a lot of times. And so I knew that, A, they're going to be called heroes. And B, they're going to be called heroes while Black and Indigenous people were dying disproportionately because of this virus. Um, so, yes. That was, when. so you're essentially saying that, like, so when you talk about the PR campaigns, I just think of all of the different commercials that I, <laughs> what no (laughs) terrible yeah that was literally as soon as we saw that we were i know that a lot of disabled people as soon as we started seeing those campaigns were like you all they're not going to do anything if they call you a hero like and people like no no they they really care about these people they're called heroes because they are heroes and we're like they call us heroes they call us heroes and then they don't do a damn thing about nothing and so, like, manage your expectations because <laughs> it's going to be a, a crapshoot. Like, and that plus, uh, as soon as we heard about medical rationing guidelines um, being put into to place, like, I think it was early, like, mid-February, I think a lot of disabled people started talking about those. Um, yeah, we were just... It, yeah, and because people don't recognize ableism as readily as racism or sexism, it's you're more likely to be manipulated by ableism because you just don't confront it. Um, Can you explain medical rationing? Yeah, so medical rationing, there were a lot of proposals on the table early in the pandemic to decide when they were going to ration care based off of pre-existing conditions or underlying conditions. And basically if they thought that um, it was it was less worth it to save you than to save somebody who was less, who's more likely to survive and thrive after their, di- their COVID diagnosis, they would give the care to the person more likely to do those things. Okay. Um, and yeah, and so medical rationing was And so like a lot of groups like mine fought that. So in our state, like they had to revise literally everything. Um, Like like a lot of the lawyers at our organization went through the state's guidelines with a red pen and just were like, no, you can't do this. This is, you're discriminating on the basis of a disability, not necessarily doing um, ration, not necessarily doing, um, what's that term for? Uh, Like they're not doing uh, emergency trauma care. and so we saw that with Michael Hickson, whose doctor literally said to him, he was a black disabled man. He said, it's not worth saving you because you're paralyzed. 
and literally starved and dehydrated that man to death while his children and wife watched um, because they didn't want to. Um, and I have a feeling that we'll be unraveling a lot of these cases after the pandemic, um, but because they were called heroes during the pandemic, nobody's going to find it within themselves to be like, maybe we should, maybe there should be consequences for doing this. But okay. yeah. I'm not seeing that with medical rationing. They definitely don't care about the people that they should. They're just probably using it for like, like, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but they're definitely, they definitely did not write that law or whatever with the intention of saving POC disabled folks. Oh no. And, and knowing the high rates of disability within our community, because of all the things I've mentioned before, I knew, like I started warning people in like April and May to be like, listen, it's going to hit black people and indigenous people real hard because of the, all those existing biases. Um, and there were even videos that, that nurses and doctors uploaded to social media talking about how they just let black and brown people die. And, and they just disappeared off the internet. Um, so yeah, I would, I would, I would venture to bet that we were, that if we're going to really evaluate how this pandemic harmed so many people, we're going to have to look at those numbers and really investigate what happened in these care settings. Right. And rather, it's just like what you said before, like rom romanticizing disability trauma. So then you can like do all your shady business behind closed doors. Like it reminds me of when Netflix like makes all the, I don't know, I think they, I think a new one just came out about this like black man in the criminal justice system. And I was like, really? Like after all the tweets, after all the campaigning, you guys are still out here pushing like black trauma and all of this. So you can profit, off, like literally profit off of it. Oh, and then, and then it's just like what you said, since we don't recognize ableism in the same way as we do racism, there's not, well, there is a discussion like what you said, but it's within the disability community, not necessarily happening outside the disability community. Yeah, and we see that a lot with like, there have been an uptick in like white supremacist disabled men being uh, elected to office. Uh, and they kind of, and, and I have a feeling that the reason that we they keep promoting those particular yes. men is because they're going to give Democrats the fight of their life when, when it comes to healthcare, because they can then rely on their body to say, I'm disabled and yet I'm a congressman person. I'm disabled and yet I do this. So why do you need healthcare when I'm the one rising above and you're just lazy? Again, I don't think it's, I'm not going to compare with this situation that I'm going to talk about, but it, um, like when Kamala Harris, they were like, she's black, she's South Asian, racism, like systematic racism doesn't exist. And they did the same thing with Obama, right? But in, at the end of the day, when su white supremacist disabled people use that as a, like use their identity to kind of, I guess, I, to limit the resources of other disabled people out there, like that, that is dangerous. And- oh, yeah. And- like you see it with Governor Abbott and the Texas blizzard a couple months ago. You see what Madison Cawthorn was um, egging on uh, insurrectionists. Uh, Dan Crenshaw is also limiting uh, his constituents' ability to access healthcare and things like that. So it's literally why they're there. It's like they're the minority that can help kind of push forward these white supremacist ideals and then rely and then fall back on their disability to uh, 
scapegoat any questioning or any sort of critique based off of uh, their own actions. Because one of the things about one of the things that inspiration does that I don't think people understand how dangerous it is, it is dangerous it is, is that it separates the person the the physical manifestation of a person from their actions. And so because we're talking about, like, let's say for me, people are really inspired because I'm on crutches and I'm outside. I don't, that's literally, like, I get complimented on that all the time. Like, you're out. Good for you. And I'm like, okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'm outside and people don't ever ask me my name. People don't ever ask me, like, how is your day going? People don't ever ask me about who I am as a person. And so when we think about that politically, you're basically becoming inspired based off of somebody's body rather than their actions. And so when Madison Cawthorn at the Republican National Convention stood up out of his wheelchair, I knew he was gonna be elected. Because, because nobody cares about anything he does beyond him inspiring non-disabled people. And he stood up out of his wheelchair. And I've talked to people who have voted for him and said like, oh, he's, he's such a strong person. I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> and they can't answer me. They literally cannot answer me. Or they'll be like, oh, he's, he works really hard. I'm like, how? The guy is like, he's, he's so, anyways. But they, they can't tell me anything about him other than he inspires them or that he is strong because he, uh, he's in a wheelchair. Who cares? <laughs> He's a terrible person. Um, and people right. Are- what you're saying right now, I didn't. Um, so you were sent. Well, what I'm talking. What I was talking about is how no one ever asks you about your day, but they essentially kind of assume that your disability is your only character trait. Yes. And, and you're you're saying that it's that same thing where someone's disability essentially masks all the harm that they're doing to an entire group of marginalized people. And we're seeing that with the Republican Party and all the examples that you've given. Oh yeah, it's not just the Republican Party, it's also within the disability community too. We're seeing a lot of like disability groups being called to task for their racism and ignorance of black and brown people and them being like, well, we didn't know any better. And, And to be fair, like a lot of black and brown people have been telling them this for years. Like this is not news. Like this is stuff that we've been talking about for years. So it happens all the time and it happens both within it and uh, within the disability community and outside of the disability community. Um, but yeah, it's very, like I always try to warn people like, <laughs> and my mom like she calls me when she realizes I'm gonna hate something because she'll go like, I saw this disabled guy on TV and he was doing some really good work but you might hate him because he, they did a whole inspirational thing and I'm like, I just send me <laughs> she's like I don't want to send you the video I just want to warn you you're gonna see because before she would argue with me and I was like I don't like this idea that my only existence is to inspire others and I don't like this idea that people can take what they want from me one without my permission and two um without ever getting to know me as a person and so I've always argued with her about that but I think in recent years She's been kind of seeing it herself um, because she's a teacher and they do the same thing to teachers. Um, yeah. Wow. So you're saying, so again, just clarifying. So it's fair to say that since society infantilizes disabled people, mm-hmm. right, 
And just like what you said, everyone can come and like take things from you. Even with that one example of that guy picking you up without your consent and everything like that. And then that ranging from how, like, okay. Hmm. Like when you said like how it's happening within the disability community, but then since we infantilize disabled people, we don't necessarily hold them accountable for their actions when they harm other groups of people. We're like, okay. Yeah, that's that's all. That's basically what I'm saying. And I think that, and one of the things that's really frustrating is that because like a lot of communities of color do not talk about ableism, one of the things that they'll do is they'll use ableism to assess a disabled white supremacist. And then because they were ableist, that white supremacist could be like, they're just ableist. They just don't like me because I'm ableist. Not because of all the valid criticism that they have, but because they're able to in that criticism. You see what I mean? Like they're able to just flip it and be like, oh, well that person's just ableist. They just don't like disabled people. They have internalized ableism. None of the things that they're saying are valid. And so like for communities of color, they're gonna really have to work on criticizing people without ableism because then they could, cause they're giving somebody a weapon to use against them later. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when, you, when you criticize somebody with ableism, that deserves the criticism and then turn around and and like and that person can turn around and then use it against you because they can basically erase every single thing you just said based on that one instance of ableism. Interesting. I, I see what you're saying. And you're saying that communities of color need to confront that if we're gonna if we're yeah. actually Yeah, and I, I see it also the other way around where it's like Black people will be will be inadvertently ableist, and then white disabled people will be racist in their criticism of that black. And then you have, oh. and then yeah. you have like black and brown disabled people in the middle. Like, can we please not like? And we're the ones that are tasked with like being the, the mediators between these interactions. And we're like, oh my god, is it like when people? Like, I mean, you know who Candace Owens is, right? Yeah. And when people critique her, but then they bring her race into it, and then they kind of, okay. Yeah, but that's the thing, is that, like, Black people could critique, critique her in light of her race. White people can never figure out how to do that properly. Right, that's, yeah. yeah like, like, they're just like, <laughs> oh, well. And, like, one of the things that, like, was fundamentally strange to me is that, like, they'll call her, like, the C-word, like, coon or whatever, and, like, it'll be a white person saying it, and I'm like, who is you? Like, <laughs> That's not your word. Stop it. Um, so yeah, it's just it's one of those it's one of those like intercultural dialogues that people just fail to 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 foster well. So. Yeah, it's uncomfortable when they say things like that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, no, I know she's a terrible person, but I you can't you can't say that. Like, <laughs> right. Okay, so I have questions more so about like, um, like you and like your background. Like I have here that you're a graduate from Eastern University and then also the American University of Paris, which is so amazing. <laughs> I was just gonna ask, so yeah, as someone who has degrees from Eastern University and the American University of Paris, in what ways has anti-Blackness and ableism manifested itself in an academic setting? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, well, my, um, Ishii University was not my first 
university experience. I actually went to Pitt, University of Pitt uh, huh. like my first year, but I had to drop out like after a year because um, one of the things I try to tell people is that like between the ages of 18 and 30, disabled people are like the most vulnerable to suicidal ideation and self-harm because it's the very first time when we have to advocate for ourselves and we're thrown into a system that we don't recognize one and two um we have to argue with people about things that should they should not be arguing with us about um and so like my first year of college I didn't even know how to ask for help in terms of getting accommodations and I was snowed into my room for like a month because there's this terrible snowstorm and I went to college with the belief that like, oh, I'll be fine. Like, I don't need too many accommodations for classes and stuff. It's just the physical part. But I really did need accommodations because my professors would not email me work because I was like, listen, I'm stuck in my room. I literally cannot get to class. Like, it's icy outside. I can hurt myself. They're like, oh, but other students can make it. I'm like, but I can't make it. <laughs> um, and so, like, I dropped out my after my, I want to say, middle of my first semester sophomore year and then I went to Eastern University um like a, about a six months to a year later um and then I went to a school where Eastern has like the disability services office it's at the top floor of a building without an elevator um so and they were always shocked to see me up there which is hilarious because I was like oh, you think I'm not gonna do a drive-by I will walk by I don't care um, <laughs> It's like, I will be up here regardless. So I would be up there and they'd be like, oh, how'd you get up here? Um, but yeah, so like there's always, there's always going to be an issue with accommodations. But I think that um, preparing young people for advocating for themselves for the, first, for the first time is incredibly important. And that's kind of why I always beat down this idea that they should be infantilized um, or not be part of their own care or um advocacy growing up because that'll fail them like I was still part I was not part of my advocacy growing up but I still had a hard time but imagine what it would have been like if I wasn't part of it at all um and so like making sure that students know what their rights are from a very young age is not something that we equip students with going into academia um and I think that we're doing them a grave disservice because it doesn't just affect your academics, it affects your mental health, your physical health um, in the long run. So academy, I always loved school. I always loved being in school because people had to judge my work first um, mm -hmm. rather than judge my body. And But like it kind of broke down my first year of college because I was like, well, am I really talented at anything because I'm struggling so hard in college um, where people just complimenting me because I'm disabled, not complimenting me because I'm good. And so that always messed with my mind and so when I transferred I really had to convince myself you know regardless of how you get to any one place you're going to be the reason why you stay and so that's because always kind of been like my rallying cry for myself because I was always questioning what my talents actually were because you know that inspirational gaze where people constantly have to say stuff to say stuff doesn't really serve you when you get older. That was Mm. Oh my gosh. So like you essentially had to learn how to stop, not necessarily that you were seeking validation from all the compliments that people were throwing at you, but that 
it like it became hard for you to separate what everyone was saying and like what you truly believed about yourself yes yeah definitely and I think that a lot of people struggle with that because like I said before being in being inspiring is not inherently good when people don't see you as a person and like going into different academic settings or different you know social settings where people are complimenting you all the time regardless of what you're doing it makes it gives you a false sense of self because either a you believe all of it and you're not good at any of it um or you believe all of it and you don't realize like what your strengths are or b you don't believe none of it and you can't motivate yourself to do things because you think people are being fake with you and that affects all of your relationships going forward um but yeah and I, and I also think that like we don't ever challenge disabled people um to do things like one of the one of the one of the things that people often say about disabled people in regards to the arts is that oh if disabled people were really that talented they would be cast no there's a lot of structural ableism in a lot of like in a lot of film and tv yeah but, but there's also the sense that like once that we don't know what we're doing because because we're not in those settings but also it's because people don't challenge us once we're there they think it's just nice for us to be there to have the cute disabled person in the corner and then not give us anything to challenge ourselves and to build and grow as artists and people um so it's it's kind of messed up all around yeah i i'm sure you're familiar with the movie that sia put out oh my god that like fits per what you're saying right now. It fits so they hired Maddie Ziegler, who is not someone with a disability, and then Sia backed up. Sia justified that by saying, "Oh well, I put someone who had autism, and I gave someone with autism the role, but she wasn't able to do." Or I don't know what kind of nonsense excuse that she. Made oh out. yeah, but then she backpedaled that whole thing. It was like, no, it was actually Maddie the whole like. Nobody <laughs> believed her, but and also that relationship. Anyways, I won't talk about it, but it's it's very sketchy. But yeah, it's the same. It's the same exact idea where it's just nice to have us around. And I think that we see a lot. While we're seeing a lot of increase in disability representation, a lot of times we're background characters or secondary characters, um, and you almost never see black disabled people in film and TV. Um, which is, another, you know, that's another gripe I have. But we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> you know, we never see black and brown disabled people in these films, film and TV. And so, yeah, like it's the exact same thing, like where you have no basis, like nowhere to ground yourself in because you're the one, it's you and your community creating up the res representation that you need ignorant without the rest of the world paying much attention or investing in your work because they think it's frivolous or unnecessary or what have you. Right, a disinvestment into the, like the creations of, of POC disabled people, yeah. Oh yeah, and one of the things that I really can't stand too is when productions that are helmed by um, black and brown people, like the production staff is black and brown, it's, it's for the community, it's by the community. And then they pivot towards white disabled people to be the disability representation. <clears throat> because you're like, I mean, at the time, like, you know, uh, death at a funeral is an example of that, um, where like there were a couple of elderly characters that were 
that were uh, aging into disability. And at the time we didn't know Chris Rock um, was on the spectrum or considered neurodivergent. Um, but they still had Peter Dinklage be the disability representation. Um, okay, then you have um, Mindy Kaling's show. I forget what the, what was the one about the young girl um, where she's, uh, she's trying to find love. She has like, Mindy Kaling had a, uh, had a, uh, yeah, I'll research it later, but can, yeah, can you know, like, you know, and like she had a, a production where it was like a young girl and, and the disability representation in that film was still a white disabled person. And then you have like, and so like our own communities don't even see us. Like, and it's always so frustrating because then we, then we show up in the room and we ask like, well, when we talk about stop Asian hate or when we talk about black lives matter, or when we talk about all these social issues, where's disability in the conversation? Like, we think about you. Like, what the hell? (laughs) 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 And so, yeah, I always get really frustrated with that because, and then we get, you know, and then we get kind of shunned from our own communities because when we take funding from white people who invest in our projects, then we're selling out. Because I said, I saw the same thing with Pose because Pose was, um, Ryan Murphy, I think, was the, was the main producer on Pose, and he was putting money into it and stuff like that. And then once they got their first season, they were like, "Well, wow, this is great black representation," and black trans people are like, uh, <laughs> "Like, it's like we kind of have to do everything ourselves." And then we're a part of the gang or a part of the community as soon as we're successful. Um, oh, and, that, and that goes back into respectability politics, where it's like you have to prove yourself to be seen as. Uh, enough to even to your own community which is always really frustrating of course i mean you would think that since black people are, are already as marginalized as we are that we would do everything in our power to make sure that everyone is in the conversation when we're advocating for justice but since we're always trying to get as close to whiteness as we can and since like able uh, since um not being able-bodied is like seen as a liability or undesirable as you have so brilliantly mentioned before. Just, I it's so sad to see how disabled people are pushed to the sidelines. And then uh, it's just so, it's, cause it's you, you would think just <laughs> being inclusive and everything. And then even how it's institutionalized, even with like black capitalism and everything like that and you know, oh, Hustle culture is horribly ableist. Hustle culture is like, you got to wake up, you got to grind, you got to grind for 20, 25-7, you're like, okay, calm down. Um, <laughs> and like, you're like, you, you can't take any sick days, you know, your, your dream will never take any sick days, your dream will, I'm like, shut up, like, <laughs> you're literally hustling people to death, literally, like, people are just not, like, you can't take care of your health if you're working 24 hours a day. You can't like go to just go to doctor's appointments uh, and make sure that you're, you know, taking rest and things like that if you're hustling all the time. And people have this idea that if you're not doing hustling according to people's ideals of what that means, then you're not doing it right. And that's just not true. Like, I think post pandemic, people are going to really have to reevaluate what's important to them because you're going to need rest. You're going to like people are coming out of this pandemic disabled. You're going to need to figure out what balance is between what you want to do with your life and what your body is allowing you to do. 
Um, and there's this idea, and that's why this idea of overcoming disability is so harmful. And that there's idea, this idea that if you're not working to overcome your disability, then you deserve everything that happens to you. And that's just not true. Of course, that's just not true. Yeah. Um, In fact, it's, it's, again, what you said, it's how people assuage their guilt. Mm-hmm. When, especially, you know, on a structural level, how large corporations, everything like that, it's how they assuage their guilt. Like, oh, well, they just aren't trying hard enough or something stupid. Like, yeah, like, or like people, you know, Black folks aren't really trying hard to get out of there. But like, shut up. And then also like the whole like, well, if you if you're really that oppressed, you you take the time to teach me and all this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> that's a little privileged, my friends. Like, <laughs> yeah, I the fact that people like say that out loud, you know, of course it's a side effect of structural ableism and race, but at the same time, like, on an individual level, you should not need someone to. Like, you can do your own research. You can actually see how you're a part of the problem instead of relying on people who are already already marginalized to like expend that much effort and just blame them and the process is terrible um but i remember before you said that um like when you were in that academic uh, setting you liked how people would see your work first Mm -hmm. um i was gonna ask like as someone who has been published in forbes Rewire, Healthline, Bitch Media, Insider, and all other like amazing publications. Um, I was gonna say, like, what does writing in and of itself mean to you? Like, and how does storytelling, like how has that allowed you to become the person activist that you are today? Because when people read that, they see your story, they see all of the brilliant knowledge that you bring to the table. I was just wondering like on a personal level, how has that impacted you? How has that given you, like writing, how has that given you an outlet? and things like that yeah so initially it's funny story because my actually didn't really like writing all that much when I was younger um and then my mom forced me to do it because she was a closet teacher that gave us homework on top of our other homework (laughs) anyways she's a teacher now but um so I was I was writing like every single day as a kid and because my mom made me like for an hour and then after a while I started liking it because like I could create entire worlds um, and build complete stories and you know make up characters and I love that part about it um, and then I always was able to write extremely well like a, not to toot my own horn but toot toot um, I was a very good <laughs> writer growing up and you so, should thank you I'll tune it for you you're amazing <laughs> so much um, but yeah I was I was always writing and people were always like that was the one thing where people were like there was no question that I could be good at it, you know? Like, there was no question that, like, people weren't accusing me of plagiarism. People weren't, um, people weren't saying that I wasn't trying hard enough. Like, I could always really write. And so every single time I took a course, I would always, like, veer towards courses that were writing heavy as opposed to, like, question and answer heavy. Um, and I think that it's because I really love the idea that you have to read my story in order to know about me. Like you can't just look at my body and make assumptions and treat me based on those assumptions. You have to actually read my words and absorb them and then react to them. Now you can react poorly. That's not up to me, but um, <laughs> you still have to take notice of, of my words and my work and understand a little bit about me before you can pop off and do whatever the hell you want to do. Of course. 
Yeah. I was like, I was completely fucking with your, um, your blog. And it was amazing. I was like, oh, it made me nervous. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. No, it's, you're fine. Hold on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like writing. And then when I started writing for advocacy, um, I noticed that like my personal, you know, white supremacy says that like white, your own story is not enough. And then the statistics are not enough. And so I kind of like, married the two and kind of created my own not necessarily it's like it's not new it's not a new method of writing but like I kind of used this like formula of what of telling my own story and then using it to reflect on systemic issues um within the disability community without and outside of it um because I knew that like there's always going to be this question of is that just your story or is this something bigger or this is a statistic what about your story like you probably don't ever relate to it because there's this idea that we're like American society individualizes you um, and kind of separates everybody out in order to like escape from critique about systemic issues. Um, right. So I kind of wanted to attack writing in that way where people couldn't say like, oh, this is just her. Um, I wanted it to talk more about the community as a whole and how my individual experience is a reflection of how society sees disabled people overall. Right. It's, I mean, I've definitely witnessed it firsthand. It's it's beautiful. You like wrapping in or giving your own firsthand account of the larger systemic issue at play. It's it's very captivating. And it's interesting how you like wrote like that as a defense mechanism. So then for people who are like lining up to critique you just to justify all the shady stuff that they're doing behind closed doors. <laughs> I was like, let me do this proactively. They're gonna come with the questions regardless. I might as well build. But, you know, build them into the actual writing. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Um, okay. As someone who makes great use of social media platforms like Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, I'm sure that you're familiar with shadow banning and algorithms, tools that social media apps use to limit the voice of marginalized groups. And I was wondering, do you believe that uh, social media apps have the responsibility to uplift the voice of, the, of marginalized creators or like since it's their own brand, do they kind of have free range, free whatever? Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, so my view is that it should, you know, they don't necessarily have a responsibility to uplift certain groups. Like, I'm glad that a lot of companies do. However, they do not have the right to suppress certain groups. You know, the bare minimum is just like making it as equitable as possible, um, which we're not seeing in a lot of so, on a lot of social media platforms. Um, I know that Twitter has like Blackbirds and Twitter Ability and like these different subgroups that are built in to uplift those communities, which is great. Um, and I think that's a great idea. But I, I think for me, like the bare minimum is just not to like step on people's necks. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> literally people are asking for it, you know, and especially on TikTok, I feel like that thing is so mer mercurial. Like it doesn't make any sense because one second they'll be heralded for accessibility and the next second they're, they're, you know, suppressing black and brown people's videos. And I've actually kind of like, one of the things I do is like, I pay attention to how social media works simply because I want to figure out how to way of, a way of turning it into advocacy. And TikTok has been the hardest to figure out because they don't have any set standards and they kind of do things based off of their own opinion, not necessarily about how it affects those communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
one of the ways that I un- that I understand that TikTok does that is that now with captions, like they've added automatic captions, but they've actually taken captions off of my videos that I put there on purpose. And so what? like, it's so me, like I'm the yeah. daughter of a, of a former professional musician. So my dad's like always like, own your masters, own your masters. So every single time that I create a TikTok video, I actually download a copy of it so that I have it for myself. And I have it set to always download with captions. So the captions are on my videos, but TikTok is specifically taking them off. And I can't figure out why. And then people will be like, oh, you're not accessible to disabled people because you don't have captions. I'm like, no, I did have captions. They're just not working. And I can't tell you why. Because I mean, I'm sure you have theories as to why. Oh, I have several theories as to why. I don't know if they like, I mean, I did an interview, like a couple, I've done a couple interviews about TikTok and how they suppress people. I don't think they like it very much, but um, <laughs> yeah, like I don't, it's so hard to learn. And usually with algorithms, you can, you can pick up on one thing and then figure out the rest, right? But with TikTok, you can't figure it out. And then with Instagram, I think that Instagram profits off of black people, but does not want black people involved. Like Instagram is very visually based and a lot of the visual trends that we're seeing are from black people, you know, Um, black makeup artists, black artists, black photographers, things like that. And then they'll turn around and then be like, not necessarily suppress the content, but like a lot of shady things will happen to that content where people, you know, get their their artwork ripped off and there's no recourse for it and, you know, things like that. And I think that there should be more legal rights for creators on the internet um okay. in terms of you know sustaining their uh sustaining their own content because if somebody else could profit off of the work that you do you should get a cut of it like <laughs> like if you and there's this like there's this like implicit contract that we sign every single time that we use either social media or google or any of these things that they could use whatever they want from us but that should not be the case like Simply using a service to not give people point blank, uh, like ability to profit off of you and then leave you out of the equation. Um, right. When you said legal rights, I was like, like, I've seen so many trends where like the white girls wear like the ripped jeans and the bandana and everything. And I'm like, Y'all, like seven, just like 60 years ago, you were, you guys are criminalizing black people just, just by the mere fact that they were wearing those clothes. And it's such a huge thing in the influencer industry. Just like, no, it's so bad. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, I was like, there was this phrase that has always stuck in my mind, which is ghetto until proven fashionable. Ah. Um, Yeah. And so I always like decried and, and as like ghetto and you know they like colored like having colored hair um or having long nails or long acrylic nails or you know having the full lips and the and the i don't have this particular inheritance but a big ass um (laughs) (laughs) those things were you know seen as you know terrible and ghetto and black and oh my god they're such a poor example for the whole community and now that people can get a profit off of it then now we're like oh actually it's pretty cool oh my god and like as long as you can separate uh black people from it then it's then it's marketable um yeah. oh yeah 
Yeah. And I feel like people like the Kardashians, people who are racially ambiguous are basically the Instagram filters of black people. Yeah, because it's like you want at the same time we want to be like, oh, they're white, but they're, yeah. <laughs> but they're not. like I, I see I see like racially ambiguous people who profit off of black culture as literal embodiments of filters because they separate black people from the actual representation, the actual cultural importance that some of these things have. And then sell it to all white, predominantly white audience. Mm. I mean, just as Black women, we're definitely familiar with what it means to be hypersexualized for things we cannot control. And then exactly what you said to see human filters make billions, yeah. literal billions yeah. off of those features. And then be upset when, like, when people are mad at them for asking us to fundraise for their friends accent like are you <laughs> like how dare you how dare you and like, <laughs> i don't understand like um people always you know when i grew up my family was always like when you become rich and famous don't forget me i don't want to be rich and famous i want to be rich and left alone like like <laughs> i want to not even be rich like i just want to be comfortable enough to have enough to pay my bills and like just never have to work again like that's literally it um but yeah like they yeah I think that you know they take our culture and uh, you know even with you know a lot of these newer brands smaller they, they rip off smaller creators sell their work and because there's no like copyright restrictions on a lot of artwork or um clothing they then profit from those people there has to be a better way of making sure that people are a protected and b compensated Exactly. Even there is this one TikTok that I saw of this, um, I think of this one Black creator critiquing or like, you know, when you can like stitch on TikTok, I think that's yeah. what it's called. It was of this white, this like this white boy, he was saying he was also stitching another Black creator, he said, who was talking about how like oppressed he was and like systemic racism. And then the white boy was like, you think you're oppressed? I'm, and then he goes, I'm autistic and I have ADHD. Oh, yeah. I think you've seen that. I've heard about it. I have, I have a habit of if I don't like something that I see, I block that person. <laughs> like, like, not even the person that's making the video. I block the person that's stitching the video. Like, no, no. I've, I've, I block the person that they stitched because I'm like, I don't need to put that, put that in my life. But I guess I have heard of that one. And I, that goes back to what, you know, I was saying before about like in the disability community, there's still a lot of racism. And there's yeah. this idea that they can scapegoat any critique of their racism because they are disabled. Right. Um, and you can profit off of it. Oh yeah. Like, most of the representations of disability that we see or like even the influencers that get a lot of most of the um a lot of the uh opportunities are white disabled people um because i think for white disabled people it's viewed disability is viewed as a fall from the full capacity of your white privilege and so there's this fascination that everything will still be okay for white people if they ever become disabled um, and they kind of uplift, which is, you know, I have no problem with people, you know, talk about disability and people uh, getting paid, like marginalized people getting paid. What I have a problem with is presenting one group as one dimensional. That's always going to be an issue. 
Um, and we're seeing that now with Caitlyn Jenner running for office in the trans community. We see that with white disabled men uh, who use their own white privilege to rise to power and then further marginalize disabled people, particularly black and brown people. Um, almost, we see that with the, with the queer community with white queer people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's always, there's always that thing where like they're comfortable being uplifted because they know that like they're, tr they're trying to work towards greater proximity towards white privilege that they have been denied. Right. That was so brilliant what you just said. I was <laughs> like digesting it. Um, like what you said about how white disabled people, how we view that as a fall from their white privilege. That's such an interesting way to think about it. Um, I mean, it's the, it's the right way, it's the truth, but I never, I've never seen it that way. I mean, think about just how many movies of disabled white men that we have that were wealthy white men who were upset because they were disabled most and then decided like they were gonna end their lives because they're disabled. They're the wealthiest men in their communities and because they can't ex exercise the full privilege of their wealth or their, white, or their white privilege, they decide that their life is not worth living. Mm. Oh my gosh. Exactly. I even, I just, I don't think I've ever really seen it that way. Up until, and it's, God, like, <laughs> my brain is like, my all, I mean, I, I just, because when you said that, I think of, uh, it is, do you know that one movie where the, oh my God, it is, I was thinking about this movie the other day and it was like, it's this one really, it's like, it's romantic. This oh, movie for you. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, we hate that one. Yeah, we hate that. Like as a community, we, we relish in hating that movie uh, for a multitude of reasons, but yeah. Um, for me, it was bad. <laughs> like I was like, <laughs> it's like another one. Like I, I want more. Like, oh my god, yeah. Like that whole thing was. So like when you watch that movie, then you have to put into perspective the pandemic, because if all media tells you that it's better to be dead than disabled, and then you have a pandemic in which disabled and elderly people are the most likely to die, and people don't care, and people don't care. Right, like it's just it's a cycle. Like people don't understand like just how prevalent these viewpoints are. Um, right, recycle them and you know profit off. That was a very very popular movie when it came out. Oh my very god, I was so Like for like a good year, I was stewing about that movie. Mm -hmm. Like it's so be I'm like leave me alone. Like, don't make me watch this movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see why it's very you know, definitely romantic. It's the same, like what you're talking about before, like romanticizing disability trauma, but then at the same time saying that death is, oh, oh my God, there's, you're, oh. there's just so much to unpack. <laughs> and then also, they didn't even cast a disabled person. That's one, of the, that's one of my biggest gripes about the media industry is that like, they make us live by stereotypes that they create and reinforce and they don't even like involve us. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't, like, I can't, like, oh, because even, even, even in, like, normal conversation, somebody will bring up, like, random ass crap, and then be like, oh, well, I don't believe disabled people should have children, because, like, well, what kind of, kind of quality of life would that be? I'm like, it's Starbucks, leave me alone. 
like, I just don't want to. Um, and so, like, all, like disabled people are always seen as oddities. And then we're also, like, people always demand to have, to talk to us about literally everything. Like, I've, I, the amount of times I've walked outside and people have just been like, what's wrong with you? Like, I just, I, just, I, just, I was getting ice cream and now I, I don't want to go home. Like, <laughs> yeah, and like, we're never seen as actual people, so. Right, you can never just exist for the sake of existing. You no. always have to like be assuaging one person's guilt or the other. Oh yeah, and like children are the funniest because I don't really care what children ask me because they're children. Like if they're under the age of like nine, I'm like cool, whatever. Like they're kids; they're not gonna. They mm-hmm. literally just want to know something just so that they can like store it away and then just like walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Curious little things. Um, but like I remember one time, this kid walks like this kid and his mom walked up to me, and I was like, that usually doesn't happen. Usually it's the kid or the mom. Like it's never both, and. This mom goes, my daughter wants to know what's wrong with you. And I, and I was like, I walk differently. Like, I, just, I don't know what to say. I was literally in, in Barnes & Noble reading magazines for like an hour. Like, that's my thing. I love to do that. Ah, mm. uh, God, this is just, uh, there's just like this entitlement to us that I don't think people n- know how to like not ask for. Right, people just assume that you owe them a, a, a reason for your existence. Yes, exactly. It's very, it's very problematic because I'm like, I don't, I don't, you don't have to talk to me. Like, <laughs> and my dad used to be upset with me. He's like, well, how come you never leave your room? I'm like, because people will see me and talk to me. I just want to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is going on. My last question, you were talking about how you like to read magazines for hours I was going to ask you what your hobbies are and what you do outside of being a disability rights activist which is of course very amazing um I like I like just writing and reading I'm trying like I have trouble reading uh not necessarily the mechanism of reading but like finding time to read so um yeah I love that and I love uh I sometimes like taking pictures of myself that's fun um I really it's really sad because I don't have like a ton of hobbies because I usually like give all of my energy towards advocacy or writing or stuff like that um but yeah I do I do love like creating things and you know um (laughs) I used to like store cardboard in my house to like build dollhouses by myself and uh things like that so yeah I like little crafts and stuff like that this was I'm still like processing everything this was you have no idea how much of a privilege it was for me to be able to sit down here and talk because obviously you have you possess so much knowledge about and it's not just like like you possess so much knowledge about like the intersection of it all and that's what's the most that's what's most important when we're whenever we're talking about racism or sexism or so thank you so much I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, You are a lovely person. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. You have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.